Welcome to the Calvary Baptist Church podcast, where we share weekly sermons from our church services. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. We are a multi-generational family church located in the heart of Little Rock. Calvary's mission is to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples. Whether you've long been part of our church family or are tuning in for the first time, we hope our podcast provides the same kind of welcoming space you'd find here on Sunday mornings. Most of all, we hope this space helps you engage God's Word and grow in your faith. You know, one of the things I love about the Bible is we find all of these incredible godly men, great men of God and great women of God as we just read through the scriptures. If I were choosing kind of my top 10 great men of God, I would certainly put Noah on the list. He was a righteous man when no one else was righteous. I would put Abraham on the list, a man of extraordinarily great faith. I would put Enoch on the list. We don't have a lot of information about Enoch, but it says that he faithfully walked with God and then he was no more, meaning God just simply took Enoch home to heaven. What a great man he must have been. I think about Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, betrayed by his brothers, sent into Egypt as a slave, ends up being falsely accused, thrown into prison. As a young man, it seemed like his life was wasting away, but God had a plan and ultimately promotes Joseph to the vice pharaoh of Egypt. He's reunited with his brothers who had betrayed him. And when they realized who he was, they begged for his forgiveness. But what did Joseph do? He said, listen, guys, it's okay. What you meant for harm, God meant for good. What a great man of God Joseph was. How about David, described as a man after God's own heart? How about Elijah, another great and powerful prophet of God who too, he never died like Enoch. He was just simply, uh, uh, God sends a chariot, picks him up, and in a chariot of fire, he takes him home to heaven. How about Peter, the rock upon whom Jesus built his church? How about the apostle Paul, someone in his former life who was persecuting Christians is transformed by Jesus Christ and becomes, he goes from being a persecutor of Christians to being a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love Barnabas. Barnabas, the great encourager. The Bible says he was a man filled with the Holy Spirit, full of spirit, full of faith. And then I'd probably have to put John, the guy that's writing the gospel of John that we are studying who simply describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. I'm just the guy lucky enough to have been loved by Jesus. These great men of God, what great examples they are, heroes of the faith. But then if I had a top 10 list of women in the Bible, great women of God, great women of faith, I would certainly put Hannah on the list. Hannah was Samuel's mother, but before she became his mother, she was not able to have children. And she prayed in desperation that God would give her a child, a son. And God answered that prayer and gave Samuel to Hannah. And then she gave him back to God and even allowed him to be raised by Eli, the high priest. What a great woman of God. I think about Ruth 
a Gentile woman, but because of her loyalty, she adopts the Jewish people and the Jewish faith and ultimately ends up in the family tree of Jesus Christ. I think about Esther, that beautiful young Jewish woman who becomes queen of Persia, who ends up with uh, very courageously intervening in behalf of her people and saving them from destruction. Certainly we think about Mary, the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ, probably just a teenage girl when the angel Gabriel shows up and announces what his plans were, what God's plans were for her, and entrusted her with this incredible privilege to raise the Son of God. Mary Magdalene, a woman with a checkered past, a woman who had previously been demon-possessed, meets Jesus, gets saved, and then in gratitude follows him for the rest of her life. She is the one who was most privileged to be the first eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus. I think about Dorcas, a defender of widows. I think about Junia, a woman described as an apostle of Christ and outstanding among apostles. I think about Phoebe, one of the first deacons of the church and the one that Paul entrusted to take his letter to the Romans and deliver it to the Roman people and no doubt teach them and explain his truths to them. I think about Priscilla, a great teacher of great teachers. These godly women, great women of God, great heroes of the faith. The Bible is full of these types of people. Well, I wonder, and this is just something kind of these uh, kind of sport, sport types like to do. We like to debate about who's the greatest of all time. And so if we were asking God that question, who is the greatest of all time, what would he say? Who would he choose? Well, believe it or not, we actually have the answer to that. On one occasion, Jesus, you can find this in Matthew eleven eleven. He says, very truly I say to you, of all the people that have been born of woman, there is none greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist, really? Jesus, John the Baptist, this strange dude that we meet in the Bible, this strange looking guy that has such a strange lifestyle. He dresses strangely. He eats a very strange diet. One of the commentators in talking about John the Baptist said a good adjective to describe him would be weird. <laughs> you mean this strange, weird, eccentric wilderness prophet was the greatest of all time? And Jesus would have said, absolutely, yes. Well, I wonder, what made John the Baptist, this strange wilderness prophet, so great? Was there some type of characteristic, kind of a character quality that we could zero in on that would help us understand why he was so great, the greatest of all time. And I really believe that as we turn to our passage today in John chapter 3, 
we're going to find out the answer to those questions. John chapter 3, we're going to pick up towards the end of the chapter with verse 25. And it's a, a story again about John the Baptist. And John has been woven through this gospel, John the Baptist. We meet him in John chapter 1 the very beginning. We meet him again later in John chapter 1. And now we see him again in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3 verse 25 says this, an argument developed between some of John's disciples, this is John the Baptist, and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. And then verse 26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. And if you kind of get the backstory here in the early parts of John 3 and elsewhere, we discover that Jesus has now started his public earthly ministry and he is kind of setting up shop not too far from John the Baptist where he was the wilderness prophet. And so they were, Jesus was a little bit to the south of John. John was to the north. John was now on the west side of the Jordan River. Jesus was on the east side. And John had already met Jesus. John had already talked about Jesus. And now Jesus' fame and his popularity was growing while John's fame and popularity was diminishing. And his disciples noticed that. It was like a new preacher was in town. A new church has started up and everybody has suddenly started going to that new church and listening to that new preacher. And what was even worse, some of John's congregation, many of them were leaving John to go hang out and learn from Jesus. And John's disciples were very, very discouraged about this, very, very concerned about this, and so they talked to him. That's what they're saying to John. What are we gonna do about this? Well, what did John the Baptist say? Did he say, well, you know, I'm a pastor of this flock and it seems like this other pastor is kind of taking my sheep. Maybe I ought to go over there and hit him over the head with my spiritual staff, right? Did he do that? No. Did he say, well, guys, we need to sit down and we need to, to kind of get a new church growth strategy going, a new outreach program? Do we need to kind of become more seeker sensitive so we, we can get more people to come back to us? No, he didn't do that. He didn't say that at all. You know what he says? If you turn the page... In John chapter 3, just a few verses down, I think we get a verse, a very short verse that really summarizes John's heart and I think really kind of begins to speak to this character quality that was at the root of John the Baptist's greatness that made him such a great man of God, such a great hero of the faith. You find it in John chapter 3, verse 30. Here it is. He must become, talking about Jesus, this is what he's saying to his disciples, John's disciples, about Jesus. He must become greater, I must become less. Wow. I love some of the translations. The New Living Translation says he must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. There's a process that's taking place. 
The Net Bible says, he must become more important while I become less important. I grew up with the New American Standard Bible, and uh, it echoes what the ESV and the New King James says. He must increase, I must decrease. Now, if we were to kind of summarize what that verse is really saying and give it a character quality, this is the one I would choose. It's called humility. Humility. And biblical humility can be defined in this way. It's a hard attitude that is characterized by modesty and selflessness rather than arrogance and pride. And John the Baptist was the most humble man, I believe, that ever lived. And that is why Jesus said he was the greatest man to have ever lived. And as we kind of read through this story, this passage, at the end of John chapter 3, I think we can further define humility, what biblical humility is all about. And so one of the first things I would say about this is that humility is glorifying Jesus instead of yourself. Humility, biblical humility, is glorifying Jesus instead of yourself. Look at verses 31 through 34. It says, this is right after he said he must become greater and I must become less. This is what he says to his disciples. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. In other words, he's saying to them, look, I'm just a man like you. I'm from the earth. And my message, my wisdom is earthly. But not this guy. Not the one that they're all going to. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one that comes from heaven, from above. And he speaks with the heavenly wisdom. Absolutely, he's the one that they should be going to, that they should be following. And in fact, you guys need to start following him too. And then he goes on, verse 32, he says, he testifies to what he has heard, that's from heaven. And then the one who accepts his testimony says, but no one accepts his testimony. Many were not believing. Thank God some are now starting to believe is what John is saying. And they're going to him. And then he says, he testifies of the truth. That's verse 33. And then he continues, verse 34, he says, For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. This guy is so full of the Spirit, there are no limits to his spiritual power and wisdom. And then he continues, The Father loves the Son, has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Meaning, Jesus is the one who can give life. He is the life giver, the life sustainer, and it's eternal life and abundant life on earth. He is the life giver, the life sustainer, and those who don't believe him will experience wrath and die in their sin. He is the Savior. Of course they need to go to Jesus' church. Of course they need to sit under Jesus preaching, John is saying. 
And so basically he is reminding his disciples and telling them, look, humility is glorifying Jesus. It's not about me, it's about Jesus, John is telling them. And we need to hear that message too. We need to understand we live in a world that's uh, very, very, has a very, very different value, a very, very different culture. We live in a very self-focused world, a very self-centered world, a very selfish world, a world about me, myself, and I. That's a value that is kind of learned very early on in our culture, in our world. Our world likes to say, I am most important. But Jesus says, consider others more important than yourself. Our world says, Fulfill yourself. Jesus says, deny yourself. Our world says, rule over others. Jesus says, serve others. Our world says, promote yourself. Jesus says, humble yourself. We, as Christ followers, one of the first things we need to learn and in a process begin to develop in our lives is humility. We need to learn it is not about us any longer. It's always, always about him. And we need to learn to do that. You know, if, if John the Baptist had a social media account, a Facebook account, or a, a blog, or whatever it is out there that we do in social media, he would not be promoting himself, would he? Who would he be promoting? He would be promoting Jesus. And everything in his life, you know, I love it even when athletes are interviewed after hitting a home run or scoring a touchdown. And, you know, it seems almost a little cliche because many of them do it and rightfully so. And when they begin their interview, they'll say, first of all, if they're Christians, first of all, I just want to give all the glory to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You think John the Baptist would say something like that if he had just hit the game-winning home run? Absolutely. He's going to take everything in his life and leverage it in humility to glorify God, not himself. And we should do the same thing. If we're successful in our jobs we need to channel that glory to God and use that platform to share about him and to promote his name. Even uh, if we make a mistake, we can do that by humbly going to our spouse or our children or our friends, our work associates that we've hurt in some way, that we have wronged in some way and say, man, I'm so sorry, I blew it. I was wrong, will you forgive me? And guess what that does? It promotes Christ. Our humility begins to, to help people understand what it means to follow Christ and live for Christ. So even when we do good, we can honor him, give him praise, give him glory. But even when we mess up, we can turn that into an opportunity to speak of kingdom values, kingdom concepts, like confession of sin and like seeking forgiveness and giving forgiveness. All of these things are opportunities. Everything in life can be leveraged for the glory of our king and his kingdom. 
We need to learn to start doing that. Humility is glorifying Jesus instead of yourself. But here's the second thing. Humility is surrendering your will to God's will. It's surrendering your will to God's will, which has a result that we'll see in this story, and that is it results in joyful living. Let's go to John chapter 3, verse 27 and following. It says, after they were telling him, this is right after the disciples, his disciples informed him about everyone was leaving us and going to Jesus. He says to this, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. Meaning I was given a purpose from God. He had a plan for my life. And basically, this is my plan. We can only receive what God has given us. And we need to be faithful to that. He says, you yourself can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom, and the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him, and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. And then he says, he must become greater and I must become less. Well, who's the bridegroom in this illustration? It's Jesus. And interestingly, as we continue to see that analogy in scripture, who's the bride? It's the church. Jesus is the bridegroom. The bride's the church. John the Baptist is the best man. And his job is to prepare the church to receive Jesus and then to honor Jesus. And when Jesus is full of joy that he's reunited with the church, then that brings great joy to the best man. And that's what he was doing. He was preparing the people through his preaching of repentance, you repent of your sins, get baptized. His baptism was a baptism of repentance. And guess what? It opened their hearts up to meet Jesus, their savior, the bridegroom. And what John is telling us here is that, look, it's all about him. He has a will for me in my life, just like he has a will and a plan and a purpose for your life. Your purpose and plan may be different than my purpose and plan, different from his, but it's vitally important that we surrender our wills to God's will and do what he wants us to do. And when we do that, we will experience the greatest joy possible. It's what we were made to do. I love how Ephesians 2 8 through 10 talks about this. Last week we talked about John 3, 16, that famous verse about salvation through belief in him, belief in Christ. And Paul explains too, it's not about works. He says in Ephesians 2, 8, he says, for by grace you're saved through faith. It's not of works. Works do not save us. We're saved by God's amazing grace, this gift that God has given to this fallen, broken world. We're saved not by works, but by grace. But then if you read further, it says in John 2, 10, or in Ephesians 2.10, but we are God's workmanship. We're his handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. 
So we're not saved by good works, but we are saved unto good works. God has a plan. He's already prepared in advance the plan he has for you and for me, for each one of you. He has a plan. He has a purpose. He has a will. And it's vitally important that you and I surrender to his will, surrender our wills to his will. And when we do that, we will experience the abundant life, the most joyful life possible. John knew that. And he said, this is, this is what God has had for me. My, my job, his will for me was to prepare the way for Jesus. Prepare the way, clear the way, and now it's time to get out of the way. That was John's purpose. God has a purpose and a plan for you, for each of us. Surrender your will to his will. And sometimes it's a little scary. Paul talks about this. We have a fleshly will. We have fleshly desires. We have our plans. But when we become Christ followers, we have to submit those to him. And a big part of the day-to-day life of a Christian is simply surrendering our will, taking ourselves off the throne of our lives and putting Jesus on the throne of our lives and knowing that whatever God has for us is best. If you want to be fulfilled, if you want to live in joy, surrender your will to God's will and then just find God's will and live it out. You know, it can be a little scary. I remember when Mona and I were dating and getting a little, getting pretty serious. We had one of those uh, future talks and uh, we were talking. I said, Mona, I feel like God's called me to ministry. I have no idea what that's going to be. The only thing I know is I'll never be a preacher. I'm scared to death of standing up in front of people. But I don't know what it'd be. We might, he might call us to missions. We might, we might end up in Africa for all I know. I said, Mona, would you be okay with going to Africa? And then she was real quiet. And then in this voice that I now have kind of learned the tone, she said, I'll go with you anywhere which was real kind and sweet. But I also now have learned that that is just telling me what I wanted to hear at the time. (laughs) Mona had no plans to go to Africa. (laughs) But I do know this. If God had really had that for us and called us there, she and I would have obeyed and we would have experienced the most fulfilled life, the most joyful life possible because it was God's will. That's the key. John the Baptist knew he had a a place to play, a role to play. God had a will. He surrendered his will to God's will. And it's only when we do that that we experience what he has for us. We experience the life that is truly life. Humility is surrendering your will to God's will. And the third thing is really a principle that surrounds all of this. And that is humility is choosing to consider others more important than yourself. Philippians 2, 3 and 4 really echoes this. And it says this, it's talking really about Christ and the example of Christ. And it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, look at that word, in humility value others above yourself, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. John the Baptist knew that the most important and the best thing 
for the people he was ministering to was them to go to Jesus. Leave his church, go to their church, his church, Jesus' church. Don't follow him, follow Jesus. And we need to understand that that's putting others before ourselves. It's not about our success, our fame, our glory, our will. It's not about us at all. It's about him, and when it becomes about him, it becomes about others. And how do we live this out? Very practically. It's in all those day-to-day relationships, all of those moment-by-moment interactions, husbands with wives, parents with children, employees with employers, employers with employees, work associates, friends. It's all about simply moment-by-moment choosing to put the other person and their interest above yourself. When you do that, you're living out a beautiful quality, spiritual characteristic called humility, which makes people great in God's eyes. You know, as we go back to the list of great men of God and great women of God, pretty interesting. You can go back and examine their lives. And what do you ultimately find in their lives? You find humility. You find surrender. You find a desire to glorify God rather than themselves. I especially love the one about the guy that wrote this book, the gospel of John. You know, there was a time in his early life when he and his brother went to Jesus and they said, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, we want to sit on your right and on your left. We want to rule with you. We want to have positions of authority and prestige and honor and power. That's what they were saying. Jesus told them, you don't really know what you're asking. And then later... He told them, you got to become a servant if you want to be great in my kingdom. Well, fast forward 60 years later, John is an elderly man. He's writing his gospel and he wants to talk about his personal experiences with Jesus. But you know what? He doesn't want it to be about him. He wants it to be about God. So he doesn't even name himself in his own book. What he says, when he describes himself, he says, it was the disciple whom Jesus loved. I'm just the guy lucky enough to be loved by Jesus. That's humility. That's what God thinks makes a great man or woman of God. Let's be great men and women of God. You know, if you're here today, it all starts with a decision to follow him. And it's really a simple decision that has profound implications. You need to believe that Jesus was the one and only son of God, that he came to this earth, lived the perfect life among us, died a sacrificial death for us on the cross, dying for our sins because we couldn't pay the price ourselves. He paid it for us. 
And when we believe that, we understand that he died and then he was placed in a tomb. But then three days later, he rose from the dead. Prove that by appearing to many people, many eyewitnesses. And then after that time, he ascended to heaven where he rules and reigns today at the right hand of God. And he's waiting for you and I, those of us who put our faith in him, to go home and be with him forever in eternal life. Or else one day he's going to come back for those who are still living. And he'll take us all home to be with him forever. But it's not for everyone. It's only for believers. John preached that message. We preach that message. If you have not made that decision in faith today, a very simple prayer, just go to him now. Tell him you want to follow him. And commit your life to him. Thank him for dying for your sins. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Tell him you want him to be the Lord of your life. Teach you how to humbly follow him. If that's your decision today, I want to invite you. There's, you can make that decision right where you're at. You can come and let us know that after the service. But I'm going to stand up front this morning. And if any of you want to just come and pray with me about that or something else, some of you may want to come and pray at the altar for a friend or a neighbor, something going on in, in somebody's life that you care about or your own life. You can come here. There's something symbolic about that. If you can't kneel at the altar, you can come just sit in one of these chairs and we as a church family will come around you and support you and encourage you. This is called an invitation. It's your time to respond to what the Lord is inviting you to do. Let me ask you to stand and we're going to sing and you respond as he leads. Thank you for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church podcast. If you don't already have a church home, we invite you to join us in person each Sunday morning. Our contemporary worship service is at 9 a.m. and our traditional service is at 11.15. For more information, be sure to check out our website, cbclr.org.